Thank you, Cannon. It's always important to pray for whoever's going to be speaking because you got to listen to it. So if it's not good, it's because you're not praying well enough. So the, it's all on you. Um, so this week, has, as has been m- mentioned, is the women's retreat. And it's kind of exciting. When we first t- started talking about doing a women's retreat and letting it roll over onto Sunday, um, some people were saying, we can't do that. Nobody will come to church if the wives aren't getting their husbands up. And I was just like, that is a sad state if the men don't come to church because their wives aren't there. And, uh, but, hey, but we, we do miss our wives when they're not here. I had fun hanging out with my son-in-laws and my son because, you know, we were all kind of alone for the, the weekend, and that was really cool. So the theme for the women's retreat, I just want to share a few things with you. It's going super well, by the way, and I know it's like over. Everybody's about to come home. But the theme was running the race with endurance from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And we had a good crowd of folks that showed up, and uh, so it's really good. One of the things I love about this group is there are people there that have been at Foothills for a really long time. There are people there that are new at Foothills. We have mature believers who have been believers for a long time. And we got a group of folks who don't actually even know the Lord yet. So just what an amazing weekend. And, and some people uh, put some stuff together. It was really fun uh, while they were all getting ready. And the speakers, these are our four speakers. And it's uh, Candy, Judy, um, Kathy and Val and Judy, the, the short one in the middle, she's the one that kind of has been head, heading all this up. But just I have heard such good things about how clearly the gospel has been shared, about how people have been challenged in growing in their relationship with the Lord and the fellowship that's happening and people just connecting and getting to know each other. They went to a nice place um, and uh, they had some good food and they had a theme. There's all the racing stuff. And, uh, you know, the finish line things, that great meeting room where they were hanging out, um, some folks helping to lead worship. I mean, it just was a really good uh, weekend. And their uh, candy is leading, actually, communion, and they're doing their final message this morning. But just what, a, what an incredible blessing. And I know that, you know, there's a lot of ladies who stayed home for whatever reason couldn't go. Some of you stayed to serve and care for your family. It kind of reminded me of, like, when our church would, we would send uh, my last church, we'd send a whole group of people to India, and we'd send the whole worship team. We'd send all the teaching staff, and I would stay back by myself because I'm like, somebody's got to stay back and do stuff. And so sometimes we stay so other people can go, and that is awesome. Um, but, m- you know, my prayer is, you know, I, w- I would really love it if next year there wasn't a lady in the room because they were all at the, all at the women's retreat. But anyway, just super, super great time, and I'm just praying that the Lord will really work in that. And for all you guys who showed up with kids, congratulations. Good job. Let's give them a hand. I saw some dads coming with their kids. And, and I, when I used to come, uh, I, I always brought my kids to church when Michelle went away to these things. I had four little kids. And, uh, but I delegated. And I would say, um, go dress yourselves. And remember, what's something moms put you in? Put that on. Put something else she's already dressed you in. Don't get creative today. And uh, so, but it was just super fun. And anyway, we're just super glad that you guys are here. Super thankful for the, um, the women's retreat. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. And we are going to just re- review briefly what we talked about last week and jump into this. Um, this is, this passage is so important. And it's about marriage. And if you think about it, Satan's desire is to destroy 
And so if you want to destroy things, like what did Satan do in the Garden of Eden? He gets Eve to disobey God, causes the fall of the human race. But one of the first things that God did, I mean, God made people, but one of the first things God made was marriage. Um, he made Adam, and then it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, so he made a helper suitable for him. And, and one of the most important things in life is that we have the marriages that God intends us to have. Like, think about the influence that a marriage has on cultures, on a country, on people. I mean, it's amazing how important marriage is. And what is crazy is often, like, we're not surprised when marriage is a disaster in an unbelieving world, but marriage in church should not be a disaster. When you have two believers that are married and that love each other and that are pursuing their relationship with God, marriage should be one of the most blessed relationships. And yet, it, that's not always true, right? I mean, and we've, those of us who are married, we understand that, right? I mean, the whole reason that Paul's writing this letter is because marriage for these Christians is hard. It's hard for believers, two believers who are married, and they're writing to Paul, and they're saying, Paul, um, life's a disaster. We can't stand this. We can't take anymore. What do we do? And Paul's actually writing to answer their question to these two Christians that are married that have not been unfaithful to each other. And we know that they haven't been unfaithful because of how Paul answers the question. He doesn't talk about adultery in this passage because he's talking to two Christians who have not been unfaithful, who are saying to themselves, marriage is a disaster. Can we get out? And Paul's going to answer their question. I remember as a newly married person, uh, Michelle and I would go to church. We'd be walking up to church on Sunday morning, and, and it was just like every week, one or two people would walk up to us and say, hey, don't worry. It gets better. I mean, the first year's the hardest. And it was like all these people from everywhere telling us, you know, consoling us about our marriage. And what was crazy is that Michelle and I for a year and a half didn't have a conflict. So we were living in bliss for like a year and a half. And all these people are telling us, oh, you know, it, it gets better. And we would walk away thinking, oh, those poor people, they must have such terrible marriages. Why would they think this was anything other than heaven on earth? And... Um, about a year and a half in, Michelle and I just started to disagree about something that we both cared about. See, we had had plenty of disagreements, but it's, do you want to go to McDonald's or Burger King? <laughs> you know, it was all stuff nobody cared about. But the first time we had a disagreement about something that we were super passionate about, well, we spent the next year and a half understanding what everybody had been talking about. And uh, I, I just remember those really hard years. But here's the cool thing, is that God uses difficulties in marriage for good. Man, if you're a believer and you're having a hard time, God is going to help you be more faithful to him. And we're going to come back to this this morning. But what makes a good marriage is two people who say, I don't care what anybody deserves. I don't care about any of that stuff. What drives me is I want to please the Lord. And when you are passionate about pleasing God, more than anything else, more than your own happiness, more than anything else, that is what leads to a good marriage. Two people who say, God, whatever you say, I will do. And so God blesses us sometimes by uncovering ways that we don't want to obey God. And uh, God, you know, um, people who suffer together grow together. 
It's thinking about that. There, there are so many ways in which that is true. Sometimes a church leadership will go through a hard time about something. And if they go through it rightly, at the other end of it, they are so much closer and so much stronger. You want to talk about close relationships. Find people in the military that are in foxholes where things are blowing up and people around them are being killed and they survive. Man, those people are so close and so tight. Think about the closest relationships you've had. If you've ever been on a sporting team where you really were diligent and working hard and, and dedicated and suffering together. On the other end of that, there's closeness. And so when you're struggling in your marriage and you do it the way God says to, you end up with such a more deep relationship than you would have had had you not suffered. It enables us to help other people who are struggling. I can't tell you how often somebody's sat down in front of me and they're struggling in their marriage. And it's like Michelle and I are sitting there and we go and we understand. <laughs> we have felt exactly the way you felt. And here's how God helped us get through that. And then we're able to encourage and help. And the other thing it does, helps us not make the same mistakes in the future. Uh, often we suffer because we disobey God. And when you've gone through suffering and got to the other end, it says, next time I face a decision to obey God or to disobey God, I'm going to pick obedience. Because I know that regardless of how it seems at the time, I know it's always better. You know, I was thinking about uh, Satan also wants to use your difficulty in marriage, wants to destroy you. Uh, Satan wants to take those hard times that you're having, and he wants to use that as a wedge to tear you apart. He wants you returning evil for evil. Uh, this person I'm married to did a bad thing to me. Now I'm going to teach them a lesson not to ever treat me like that again instead of what God says, which is return good for evil. Who would have thought that returning good for evil was an important uh, principle for marriage? Like we think about that's like on the playground or something. No, we need returning good for evil in marriage. And when we disregard what God says, Satan will use difficulties to destroy us. Uh, he uh, wants to devastate your personal relationship with Christ. It's part of the problem is in a marriage when you disobey God about what he says, about how you're supposed to treat each other, it puts a wedge between you and God. And Satan wants that wedge because that leads to further sin and destruction. Satan wants to take hard marriages. He wants to destroy your kids with your marriage, your hard marriage. You dishonor, disobey what God says. And, and God wants to hurt you each as individuals. He wants to hurt your families. He wants to hurt your kids. And so Satan is really focused on attacking marriages. Now, one of the most important reasons is marriages are the best place. They are the place that God has intended to pass on the gospel message. Like that's the purpose of a couple is to worship God, to prioritize God in their life, and to be an example and a role model and to preach and to share the gospel with kids and to have kids that grow up knowing and understanding and viewing life through the lens of what it means to be a Christian. Like think about God's call for us to evangelize. Um, go door to door. <laughs> And share the gospel with your neighbors. Go to work. Share the gospel with the people you work with. If you're a teacher in a school, go into the administrative office and go share the gospel with the principal and all the secretaries in the office or go into the, dis the district and just, just go share the gospel with people. 
How, how easy would that be? Like in, in schools, right? We're not allowed to share the gospel. Like if you think about how challenging and difficult that is. Now think about having a little kid that from the time that they're born, you love them, you provide for them, you care for them. When they wake up and they're playing with their siblings, you're talking to them about this is how God says we think about people. This is how we treat people. This is why we share our toys. And, and you see how you're not sharing your toys? God calls that sin. That separates you from God. But, but guess what? Me and mom, we sin too. And God has loved us and he's forgiven us. And think about 18 years of growing up and all you hear and every, the, the theme in everything you do is this is what it means to be a Christian this is the gospel message. This is how God blesses you even when you fail. Like think about growing up in that home. God's intention is that homes are the greatest piece of evangelism that there is. But if mom and dad hate each other, if mom and dad are fighting, if mom and dad are not doing the things that God intends, what gets lost? Sharing the gospel, caring, helping kids grow to know the Lord. That gets lost. So it is no wonder <laughs> that Satan has taken aim on marriage. And uh, it's no wonder that sometimes uh, what you see in the church is not different than what you see in the world. But anytime that's true, it's because the people in the church are not reading and focusing and paying attention to the things that God has said. So, hey, uh, shall we jump in here? Um, let's do it. All right. So what we see in, uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Actually, I'm going to read this passage before we jump into this point. Let's start in, um, let's start in verse 8, and we'll read our, our verses. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Now concerning about the things which you wrote... Um, that's just, he's telling him, he's answering a question in verse 8. To the married, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And so being single is good, but being married is good. Verse 10, to the married. So now he's speaking to married people. I give this charge not I, but the Lord. So he's just saying, I'm quoting Jesus. And we know what questions he's answering by what part of what Jesus said he quotes. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. And so Paul just writes to these people and he says, you're miserable. You feel like marriage is terrible. Stay married. And so that's what he tells them. That's the, the powerful message. And to the rest. So you got single people. You got married people. And then who's the rest? Well, the rest are people who are in an unequally yoked married marriage where you have two people that are married. One is a Christian and one isn't. And I think that this is just talking about, like, this is a sinful culture. There are a bunch of people who had been married, and as they went out and preached the gospel and ministered to people, one of the spouses became a Christian. And they're writing to Paul, and they're saying, okay, so now I'm a Christian, but my spouse isn't a Christian. What do I do? 
Uh, should I stay married? Should I get divorced? Like, what do I do now that I'm in a, this unequally yoked home? And we have kids, and, and, and how does being in a home where both parents are not Christians and both parents are not on the same page spiritually, how does that work out? What are we supposed to do? This is what Paul says. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. And that's just Paul saying, here I'm giving new revelation. Before I was quoting what Jesus said. Now the Holy Spirit is going to tell you um, what is what to do through me. To the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And so as we consider this, the first thing is that we, we learned last week that marriage is not the highest or the only state. Single's good and married is good. Bible says that. Also, it's satanic to forbid marriage. When God gives people options, we don't step into their life and say, no, that's not an option you have. We don't go to sin single people and say, you have to get married. That's wrong. The Bible here in 1 Timothy 4 says, when people go and say, you cannot get married, anytime anybody tells somebody they can't get married, unless you've had an unbiblical divorce, like what Paul says here, um, you're not free to remarry unless you, if, if you've divorced in an unbiblical way. So, I mean, of course, we would challenge people to obey that. But if God says you're free to marry, then you can marry, and it is satanic to tell somebody they can't. And so then here's the second thing, and we, we, jumped, we dealt with this last week. Believers stay married even when it's hard. The Bible intends that marriage be for life. Uh, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And we see that the disciples and the Jews were struggling in their marriages. Not, not Jesus, but the disciples and the other Jews. They were married and they had a hard time in their marriages. How do we know that? Because Jesus is, tells us in Matthew 19.9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And then this has always shocked me. I mean, Jesus says you can't get divorced except in the case of uh, sexual unfaithfulness. And the disciples respond by saying, well, if that's true, if that is the case with a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. I mean, how miserable, what, a, what terrible view they had of marriage. You can only get divorced in the case of adultery. Man, nobody should get married. And then Jesus just says to, to him, um, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it's been given. And that's what Paul talks about, right? That we have the gift of singleness and the gift of marriage, and those are both gifts. And so if you have the gift of singleness, by the way, if you're single, it's just a secret for you. If you are currently single, you have the gift of singleness. It may not be a gift you like, but it is a gift. 
And if you're married, you have the gift of marriage. And it, <laughs> it may not be a gift you like, but it's still a gift. And, uh, but there's, there are also people that God has just made them, and they're happy, and they're, they're happy single, and they desire to just live a single life, dedicate their life to the Lord, and, and they're not compelled to be married. That's a good thing, and that's not bad. And the church should be thankful for people in that state, not making them feel less than whole. And so marriage is a gift. And um, I want to talk about, I just want to take a, a few minutes here, and I want to talk about what does it take if you're in a hard marriage or if your marriage is not hard, how can your marriage be the gift that God intends it to be? That's one of the really cool things in the Bible is that the Bible assumes that Christians will obey God. It's an interesting thing with Paul talking to these people, and he's just saying, if you're believers, stay married. The assumption is that if you have two believers, no matter how miserable they are, no matter what is going on in their life, two Christians will obey what God says. So Paul doesn't, like, get into this thing of, well, what happens if, as a believer, you know, what if people don't want to obey? The assumption in the Bible is that Christians obey. And that is something that is lost in our culture. We have people that actually are not even diligent to figure out what God says. And so the Bible, you think about the commission of the church is um, to make disciples, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded. Uh, the Bible talks about salvation uh, later on, and it talks about the obedience of faith. People who have faith obey. And so, um, and that's our job, right? But how many churches do you go to where people are unwilling to actually say the things that God says. No, don't, don't read the Old Testament. Don't look at the Ten Commandments. Don't look at any of these laws. Don't look at all the things God says. Our message is just Jesus loves you. You know, that's not the only message in the Bible. That is a message, but we need to know everything God says, and we need to do everything that God says. That is just, that is the baseline for a Christian. That is the assumption in a Christian's life. And that's why I think it's crazy that people will say things like, it is natural and normal for teenagers to rebel. That is not natural or normal for a Christian teenager. That is natural or normal for a teenager. And I think part of the problem in our looking at life is that we base whether or not somebody knows the Lord on whether or not they prayed a prayer. We could get anybody to pray prayers. I could have gathered my four kids together when they were, say, five through nine. I could have got them there and said, hey, Dad loves you. This is super important. If you don't pray this prayer, you're going to hell. Don't you want to go to heaven? I could have got my kids to pray a prayer. That, that would have been so easy. Take little kids, throw them in Sunday school. Get a Sunday school teacher trying to get them to say some words. You could get anybody to do that. That does not mean you're a Christian. A Christian is a person who does say those words, but then the Holy Spirit go, comes into their life, regenerates them, makes them spiritually alive, and a heart that is regenerated wants to obey God. Didn't Jesus say that? If you love me, you will obey me. I mean, uh, we could just go through tons of verses, right? 
And so Christians obey. And so if you're married, it doesn't mean obey is easy, and it doesn't mean we all do it, right? We all know that we don't always do it. Let me tell you what God says about how you can have a good marriage. Go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. And this actually needs to inform the other things we've talked about in this passage. Remember the whole section where we're talking about how you don't belong to yourself, but your body belongs to your spouse, and don't deprive one another? Do you know how many people hear that and they say, you better not deprive me? See what it says? Did you know that, did you notice that in that passage, that's not the direction of that command? That anybody demands what they want? The direction of that command is you give to your spouse. It's not something that should ever be demanded. And when we read what the Bible says about marriage, it is very clear that we don't go through life demanding our rights. So let's just look at what the Bible has to say to husbands here uh, and wives. It says in Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. That word, as to the Lord. Um, marriages is, is a wife who says God has designed marriage and he's designed the husband to be the leader of the home. And God has told me that I need to follow my husband's leadership. Now, that does not mean that if a husband tells a wife to do something sinful that she does it. You need a lie for me. You need to sign this loan document that has a bunch of stuff on it that's not true. Um, we don't ever disobey God because of anybody anywhere. But generally speaking, God has said that women need to follow the leadership of their husbands. That does not mean that wives are non-people, that they don't have gifts, that they don't have talents, that they don't have abilities. In, in my marriage, Michelle and I, we really strive to focus the way God says we're supposed to focus, to function the way God tells us that we're supposed to function. And sometimes what that means is when we're going somewhere, I exercise leadership. And I say, Michelle, you're better at this than me. So you go do that instead of me. Like we've done that going into situations where I say, you tell me how to handle the situation because you're better than me. But that's leadership. It doesn't mean I say go stand in the corner while I do everything. Like that's not leadership. God intends us to function together. That uh, because all the things that are good in Michelle make me better. And all the things that are good in me make her better. But God has still designed leadership. But you'll notice it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What drives a wife in a marriage is not my husband so amazing. He's so cute. He just, I like all the stuff he does. I love his personality. Hey, well, that's true, right? But there's times when it's not true. But we follow the leadership of the people that God has put in our lives who are supposed to lead us as to the Lord. We do it for God because pleasing him is what matters most for the husband is the head of the wife as even as Christ is the head of the church his body and is himself its savior now as the church submits to Christ so wives ought to submit to um, in everything to their husbands and so that's true and in everything we understand scripturally um the apostles were supposed to follow leadership too, right? And when the, uh, the leaders of their day came to them and said, stop preaching, guess what they said? 
You decide what you're going to do, but I'm going to obey God rather than men. And because we're submitting as to the Lord, anytime any leadership asks us to do something sinful or wrong, we don't do it. Uh, we, we don't sin because someone else tells us to. But when it's not a matter of sin, we follow the leaders that God has given us. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. <laughs> Last week we read a list of what's not love and what is love, right? So this one time, this, this couple I'm counseling and this wife comes and says, man, I just, I feel like my husband doesn't love me. And he just says, no, of course I love you. And I, and I just said, well, why do you feel like he doesn't love you? It's like, well, he's having an affair with this lady at work. And he's not decided whether or not he wants to stop. He's going to keep having an affair with her. And he tells me he loves me, but he's sleeping with this other lady he works with. And I just said, yeah, he doesn't love you. You don't feel like he loves you because he doesn't. And I said to him, you're saying you love your wife. You don't love your wife. And then I read 1 Corinthians 13, and I said, are you doing these things? And it was like super shocking for both of them. He was so offended, he never came back. You know, he's like, I'm not talking to that guy anymore because I dared to tell him, you don't love your wife when you're having an affair and you haven't decided whether or not you're going to stop. That's not love. So husbands, love your wives, not by whatever weird definition you came up with, but with the definition that God gave. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. God talks about leadership, right? And he says leaders serve other people. A and so a leader, a loving husband's giving himself up. He's not demanding. He's not sitting on the couch saying, um, can you be quiet and bring me something to drink while I watch the game? Like that's not biblical leadership. Not that there's anything wrong with serving somebody. It's not a bad thing. But people who walk around with this understanding of leadership, like they just boss everybody else around and they tell everybody else what to do and they just do stuff. And that doesn't mean that husbands don't ever exercise authority. There are times that leaders need to lead and give direction, but it's not for selfish reasons. And so he says, um, well, okay, as Christ loved the church, does Christ ever give instructions to the church? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, I snorted. He does. That's part of leadership. But what it says here is Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. A husband's job is to build his wife spiritually, to encourage her, to bless her, to help her be everything that God intends for her to be. And if she wants to do something that's going to spiritually harm her, a husband should say, we're not going to do that. And there needs to be guidance and direction. And, and the other thing, too, is often it's not, <laughs> it's not like husbands are these giants always wanting to do the right thing and they're trying to stop their wives from sinning. I mean, that's not true, right? I mean, often isn't a, a wife being the helper that God intends to say to their husband, I'm not sure that's a really good idea to do. Isn't that, wouldn't that be wrong if you did that? Michelle and I have had plenty of those kind of conversations too. When, when we were struggling with our parenting, often Michelle would stand behind the kids and say to me, they couldn't see her, but she'd say, <laughs> you know, she'd say, maybe we should talk first before we move forward on this. 
And you know what I thought to myself? God gave me Michelle for a reason, so I would pause, and then we would go talk. And often what she had to say was very helpful. <laughs> and so we're encouraging each other to walk with the Lord, right? We look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh. Why is it that Paul puts that in a conversation about marriage? You ever met somebody who's married and you could describe their feelings toward each other as hate? Paul's writing to the church. He's writing to Christians. And he actually says, it is so crazy to hate your spouse. It's like hating yourself. Your spouse is you. If you love your spouse, you are loving yourself. Why? The two become one, right? And so, so you're loving your spouse. Everything you do for your spouse, you're doing for yourself. It's like this weird thing. The more you bless this person, the more you're blessing yourself. No one ever hated his own flesh, verse 29, but nourishes it, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then this is the crazy thing, because Paul wraps this up by saying this, this mystery is profound, but I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. So he's talked about marriage, given all this stuff about marriage, but then he says this thing, and I'm just going to tell you that if I didn't have the Bible, I would never have come up with this on my own, that a marriage represents the relationship between Christ and the church. And so as you think about that, it, it, is, it actually informs what a husband should do when you think about who Jesus is and what he did for, did for the church. It informs what a wife should do and who she should be as you think about how the church should re relate to Christ. And then, okay, that's how a wife should relate to her husband. Like when you think about those things, it's very informational. But the other thing is that it lays this, in a sense, a burden. Uh, it's a good burden. But for you to recognize that you're you are evangelizing your kids. You are evangelizing your family members. You are evangelizing your neighbors by how you do marriage. That's why I was saying way back, if you're in a hard marriage, you cannot just live that way. You need to get help. That needs to change. You need to say, we're struggling. We don't like each other. We don't know how to handle this thing. We have these recurrent conflicts. Come help us. Because your marriage being good, having a good marriage is an obligation for a Christian. Because you're displaying Christ and the church to the world. And so it's critical. First of all, for your own happiness. <laughs> like you want to be miserable for no reason? Or do you want to be super happy? Man, marriage is such an incredible gift. So it's, it's a necessity for your own well-being. But it's, it's also a necessity as a Christian that you have a good marriage. Um, okay, what about when things go wrong? What do you do when things go wrong? Um, how about 1 Peter chapter 3? I want to read some advice that God gives people in struggling marriages. I don't know why these verses are never read. People get angry when you read these verses to them. But these are critical. And we should read them to each other. We should read these things to ourselves. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. 
Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word. Okay, remember what I said about obeying the Bible, that that's Christian? If you take this word for disobeying the word and you follow it throughout the New Testament and even some spots in the Old Testament, it is always talking about non-Christians. It's like I'm not saying that this verse is talking about a non-Christian husband because I think it could apply to a Christian husband. But this word, disobedience, always refers to unbelievers. John 3.36, if you believe in the Son of Man, you have eternal life. If you do not obey the Son of Man, you do not have life, but the wrath of God abides on you. So that's one example. But all over the New Testament, this describes non-Christians because the thing that characterizes an unbeliever is they don't obey the Bible. And the thing that characterizes Christians is that they obey the Bible. So this is saying if you are married to a non-Christian or if you are married to a person who acts like a non-Christian, because that's what non-Christians do. They disobey Christians that don't obey. That's like, a, that's like a, an oxymoron. It's like a conflict. But it says, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some don't obey the word. This is a hard marriage that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be merely external, the braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, fine clothing, but let it, your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Um, okay. Paul's talking about if you're a believer and your unbelieving spouse is willing to be married to you, stay married. Can I just ask you, who wouldn't want to be married to that person? This wife that just is, has a great attitude and, and has a, a loving, gentle, kind spirit is not just working on the outside but focuses on her internal character and just has this character that's pleasing to the Lord what person wouldn't want to say, I want to stay married to that person? Like, I know this, this, this couple, they had this terrible marriage. And the wife ends up becoming a Christian. And her husband just said, we always fought. We always had problems. We always had difficulties. And she became a Christian and just became the most incredible woman I've ever met. And I just thought, what happened to you? And he ended up becoming saved. And at my last church was an elder for like many years. But his story was that his wife got saved, started doing this, and then he got saved. Um, okay, what about husbands? Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs, fellow heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. God says to husbands, you better live with your wives in an understanding way or I won't listen to you. Like, have you thought about that? <laughs> One time Michelle and I had this conflict and, and I was just, it was right after that really intense part. We've been married for like two years and, and I'm just thinking, oh my goodness, this is terrible. I'm so miserable. And I walked outside and I thought, you know, I'm just going to spend some time praying with praying and because at least I have the sweet fellowship with the Lord <laughs> I remember this verse and I'm like oh man that's messed up too I can't even talk to God because I can't talk to Michelle and guess what that did to me made me go back in the house 
and try to be more understanding and work things out with Michelle because I didn't want that to hinder my relationship with the Lord. And that's what God says. And then verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Isn't it interesting that that passage is quoted in the context of how Men and women relate to each other in marriage. And we quote that about how we're supposed to be in the world, but this is talking about how are you to be in your marriage. And I'm just telling you right now, if you do these things, you will have a wonderful marriage. You will be blessed. You're going to enjoy being married. You're going to have all the blessings that God intends. And your family is going to be blessed by what is going to flow out of that. And in case you think you can't change, I want you to know you can change. We are people of habits. I don't care how long you've been married. I don't care how difficult things are. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You have the body of Christ. You have God's word to give you guidance. And if you practice doing what God says, you will change. And so this whole lie that you can't change and that whatever you've had is what you will have, that is not true. Okay, let's jump into this, and we're going to go very quickly. Number three, what about a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever? And Paul basically, this is how committed Paul is to marriage. He says, don't get divorced if you're married to an unbeliever. But he does say this, if the unbeliever abandons you, you are free to remarry. He says, you are not under bondage. So if you're married and you, to an unbeliever and they leave you, you can get remarried. So God recognizes divorce in the case of adultery. Um, sex is such a part of marriage that when you express that somewhere else, it breaks marriage. And the Bible doesn't say you have to get divorced if there's been unfaithfulness. But the Bible says if your spouse is unfaithful, you can get divorced. That's what Jesus says. Whoever gets divorced except for adultery. And often in churches, we ignore part of what God says and we lay burdens on people that God didn't lay on them. And so when the Bible says that in the case of ad adultery you can get divorced, then in the case of adultery you can get divorced. It's not recommending that. It's not saying you have to do that. But that is an option that God gives. And if an uh, unbelieving spouse abandons you, you can get remarried. You are free. The Bible says that. And as leaders, we call people to obey Scripture but we don't lay things on people and tell people they have to do things that God didn't say they have to do. And so the Bible tells us that. And then it just talks about the priority of evangelism. And it just says um, that, like this whole thing, this is a challenge, and I, I want to read it to you. It just says, um, verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. This is talking about the blessing that comes in the life of a believer. Holy is to be set apart, separate for God. 
And, and this is not saying that you are saved by your spouse or that your kids are saved if they have a Christian parent. Unclean kids are kids that grew up in Gentile homes. So what he's saying here is that there is a blessing that comes into a family even if only one of the parents is a believer. The, the husband is blessed if there's just a godly wife who loves the Lord, who's speaking the truth, who's an example of the gospel, that blesses that husband. And if it's a saved husband, it blesses the unsaved wife. And think about God's blessing being poured out on people. And in some ways, if he's going to bless one person in the marriage, it blesses the whole family. You ever thought about that? That, that maybe... Um, a husband that's lazy doesn't get fired. Instead, he gets a raise, and it's because God's trying to bless his believing wife. I mean, God blesses homes. And then it ends by saying, how do you know, O oh husband, whether you'll save your wife? How do you know, O oh wife, whether you will save your husband? Marriage is evangelistic. Um, now, a believer won't just marry an unbeliever. And part of the reason that they're asking this question is because of 2 Corinthians talks about that. It says this in 2 Corinthians, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What, according, what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Nothing. So this describes my home. Um, I grew up, my mom uh, grew up in a Presbyterian church. And uh, she met my dad, who was an amazing guy, who was a pilot. He did all this really cool stuff. And he was a Mormon. And so my mom decides she wants to marry my dad. And her uncle's a Baptist preacher. And he goes to my mom and he says, don't marry him. He's not a Christian. The Bible says that's wrong. And my mom just said, nah, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Mormon, it's all the same. She married him anyway. When she came to this country, we moved here from South Africa. We came to this country. And uh, I'm just telling you, I grew up living the misery of an undivided home. That was a sinful thing that never should have happened. And I'll tell you right now, if my mom was honoring the Lord in her life, it never would have happened. Because as whatever was cool about my dad, I'll tell you what was missing from his life. He didn't have a heart for the Lord. He didn't understand the gospel. He, he didn't have the most basic thing that is what drives every Christian. He didn't have that. And so if my mom was walking with the Lord, she never would have married him. And growing up in our home, there was not unity. There was not a focus on the gospel. There was all kinds of conflict and difficulty. But guess what happened? Um, God taught my mom a lot of things. And we went to church every week. And my mom had us as kids memorizing verses in the Bible. And she used to try to share the gospel with my dad, but he didn't listen to her because he had such a difficult relationship. But eventually, he ended up with a bunch of kids and grandkids that were all saved sharing the gospel with him. And when my dad was in his eight, late 80s, he came to know the Lord right before he died. And so God saved him. He blessed our entire family. But you want to know what my mom would never say? Oh, yeah, you should date and marry a non-Christian. She would never say, she would say, don't ever do that. She wouldn't say, oh, it worked out good in the end. He ended up becoming a believer. You know, marrying a non-Christian, dating a non-Christian is not a 
missionary dating. It is the opposite of that. When you're a Christian and you basically communicate, actually, I don't care what God says. I do what I want. I ignore everything God says. Uh, you want to, here, let's get married. God says I shouldn't marry you. I'm going to do it anyway because I prioritize me. Is that evangelistic? Jesus says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they'll see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So the more you disobey God, the more that separates and is a bad example to somebody that you're dating. And it doesn't mean that God's not merciful and gracious and can't save somebody in the worst of circumstances. But dating an unbeliever is the worst. Marrying an unbeliever is the worst of circumstances. But God's so powerful, he can even work in that. And so that's what they're saying. That's this passage. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for giving us your word. And God, in a moment, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. And God, I pray that you would help us to be people that obey you, that have the marriages that are what you intend in your name. Amen.